Good morning. Um, yeah, my name's Tim. It's, it's great to be here um, amongst you all, especially if, if you're new, if it's your first time, it's great to have you. What a joy it has been to, to sing together. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terrible singer. Um, apologies to those around me. I'm, I'm really bad at singing. Um, Chris is never going to invite me to lead worship, but um, how good that was. Let's hope my, my voice holds out by the 7.30. It might just be a whisper, um, but we'll get there. We're two weeks into a series going through the book of Amos. Um, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 6 to 13 today. And before we kind of get into the passage, I just want to look for a moment at what is going on in Amos. Like, Why is Amos in our Bibles? You see, Amos is written to a people called the Israelites, um, and the Israelites pretty much start off by God saving them from slavery. They were in Egypt, and God takes them, and he saves them from slavery. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So he saves them, and he, he gives them a, a covenant. And a covenant is kind of a, of a DTR moment, a defining the relationship moment. Yeah, so he says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I will bless you and look after you and provide for you. This is how you can relate to me. This is how you can worship me. This is what will happen if you live a life in line with what I say. And, and this is what will happen if you break the covenant, if you break this relationship. These are the consequences. And it goes well for a while. There's ups and downs. But by the time we get to Amos, things have taken a, a sour turn. You see, God has made it quite clear that he cares about holiness and right living and how we, and how we approach God in worship. He cares about how we treat the poor and those who are more vulnerable in society. And in all of these areas, Israel are a right mess. We heard that last week in chapters one to three of the various ways in which Israel is a right mess. They've taken that covenant and they've ripped it up. It's a, it's a real state. And so the question on our minds then, and something of what is addressed in chapter four, is what will God do when his people are wayward and turn from him? Will he just give them over to their sin? Will he, will he harden their hearts? Will he say, oh, you, just, you go and do that. You have fun there. You, you take what is destructive for you and you flee from me that's ultimately good. Flee from the God that is good for them. Will he just give them to it? Or will he pursue them with his grace? And we can ask for ourselves too, how might God respond when we give ourselves to things that disobey God? The answer might surprise you a little bit. We're, we're going to get there. Um, if you want to open up your Bibles um, to Amos 4, verses 6 to 13. And I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We long to sing your praises. And we ask that by your Spirit, your word would be clear to us this morning. Would you instruct us and encourage us? And would we see you, Jesus, in it? We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's have a look at chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. Um, he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and, so, and send no rain on another city. 
one field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And so it goes on. We have this, this cleanness of teeth, which is, a, I think, quite an interesting way of saying lack of food, famine. God gives them famine, there's, there's drought, there's plagues and, and pestilence and, and death. What's going on here? It's all making the same point. Israel, it's a real mess. Isn't it clear to you? And yet the same thing returns again and again, yet you did not return to me, your God. And not only is God saying that these bad things are happening in Israel, he's saying that he's done them. Look at all the verbs. He says, I gave, I withheld, I send, I struck, I killed, I overthrew. Intensia. The first point we see here, and it's not we're going to camp out, but the first point we see is that God is sovereign in all things. He is sovereign in everything. That in the affliction and the, and the suffering that some of the Israelites are facing, that he is sovereign in those things. The Bible doesn't allow us to have a small view of who God is. Instead, it paints a big, majestic picture of what he's like. And it says that he is in control of all things. That in the, in the big things in my life, in, in me living in Nottingham, in my, my job, in me being in this church, that he is in control. And also in the small things, in the many and various embarrassing moments of my life, he is sovereign and was in control. One of my heroes is a, is a woman called um, Johnny Tada. When she was 17, she um, had a diving accident and was left paralyzed below the neck. And she's a, a wonderful Bible teacher. Um, she really loves the Lord in a really challenging and inspiring way. And this is one of the things she says about this. She says, nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. Nothing can thwart his purposes and nothing is beyond his control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. Sovereignty is a weighty thing to ascribe to the nature and character of God. Yet if he were not sovereign, he would not be God. The Bible is clear that God is in control of everything that happens. God is in control of everything that happens. In our pain and in our suffering, and our feelings of purposelessness, and in our health and vitality, he is in control. Jesus says in the New Testament that not one sparrow, not one bird falls to the ground and dies outside of his father's will. He is sustaining us this very moment. Maybe you need to have a, a wider picture today of who God is. So God is in, involved in, in sending this affliction to Israel. That's, that's clear from this text. Look at verses 6 to 11. The question then is why? Why is he doing this? 
look at the end of each of these clauses. He says, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He does these things to take Israel and provoke them to return back from their waywardness and their sin and all this stuff that will be destructive for them, but to turn back to God. Instead of giving them over to their sin and letting them run loose, that will be destructive for them. He works that they would return to him. God uses hardship and suffering that Israel would leave their mess and turn back to God. So in love, he wounds his people. And while it might look different, and we're going to get into it, there is a principle here as to how God relates to us when we give ourselves to sin and stuff that is, is not good for us and disobedient to God. God uses pain and hardship to show us the situation in our lives and to bring us back to him. It's called godly discipline. And discipline is the hard and loving work of God that we would become more like Jesus. It rouses us out of sinful patterns in our lives. C.S. Lewis says that, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, that he speaks to us in our conscience, and he shouts at us in our suffering. It is a, it's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And, and, and he uses all sorts of suffering, illness, relational strife, unmet expectations. He uses various things as, as, as discipline in our lives. Uh, and I, I want to show you this from as much of the Bible as possible, because this is, this is a lot to hear, perhaps, for you. So this is 1 Corinthians 11. And we're not going to get into all the context of what's going on in the passage. It's about people who are taking communion, so that's breaking bread and breaking wine, having wine. And they're doing it in a way that is sinful, okay? Um, and so that's what it gets at at the very start there in 29, verse 29. He says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we would not be finally condemned with the world. Quite the passage, yeah? And people aren't falling over themselves to preach this verse. People in this church that Paul's writing to in Corinth had gotten into sin and that had led to some of them being sick and some of them dying. It was discipline, the passage says, that they would turn back to God and wouldn't be led astray. And so the question comes, and we, and we, and we need to address it, is all suffering to be understood this way? Because... I know that many of us in the church right now are really in suffering. I get copied into various kind of prayer emails and hear different stories of people in the life of the church. People struggling with long COVID, with mental health illness and depression. 
And I want to make it so, so clear that not all suffering is discipline from God that you would change. And I want to make that so, so clear. In those situations, in that suffering, that it's just the, the general um, affliction and pain that we're told we will experience in life, in a broken world, and isn't the work of God to, to address it in our life. Is he still sovereign in it? Yes, he is. Does he still have a plan in it? Yes, he does. We might not ever know what it is until we're with him in heaven. Might he use it to shape our character and to change it, change us? Yes. We know that, that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character uh, produces hope. And this hope will not put us to shame. Why? Because the Christian hope is so different from the hope of the world. The hope of the world is the uncertain and unsure, longing for the future, doesn't know what's going to happen. I hope this happens, but I don't know. And the Christian hope is so different. Why? Because the Christian hope is based on the fact there is currently right now a man in heaven named Jesus. He is there past death, past sin, past suffering. And because he's there, we know we'll be with him. It's why the apostle Peter can shout at the start of 1 Peter 1, that he is our living hope. It is a sure and certain hope in your suffering. Know that you have a sure and certain hope in him. But we, 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 we're getting a bit off our passage. So how, how, how do we work out if suffering is, is in our lives, is strength from God to provoke us to change and get into a life that is more freeing and in line with who he is? Well, I, I found in the various times where God's put a finger on something in my life, that he is so sure to make it clear, ask him. That he will bring gentle, perhaps maybe slightly feelings of kind of, I might not feel the most, um, I don't know, happy about it, but it is freeing. When you, you just know the conviction of the spirit in your life, that God's saying this in your life needs to change but we're not to, to be given over to endless soul searching. What is in my life that maybe this, this issue in my life, maybe oh, if I've broken my arm, does this mean there is some deep sin that I'm not aware of? We're not told to do that. Be free of that. Let's have a look at another passage that helps us get discipline. We're going to look at Hebrews 12 for a moment. Uh, you thought we were done with Hebrews. We're right back. Um, let's, so this is verses 5 um, to 7 of Hebrews 12. And he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary, weary, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. You have to endure, it's a hard thing. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so the point we see here is that discipline is, is hard, but discipline is a work of a loving father. 
that is a sign that we are in the family of God, that we've been adopted, which means it is normal and that every Christian will experience the identifying of God of an area of sin in their life, inviting them to change, to change. And, and, and may use suffering and hardship to do that. That it is born in the love of the Father. What a safe place to be. He is like a surgeon who expertly cuts and wounds the patient to remove a growth that shouldn't be there. He expertly identifies areas in our lives, sins we're holding on to and don't want to let go of, but are just destructive for us. And he, he works with maybe more like his son. And that we may have what is truly good. God's discipline is done out of love. And this isn't a particularly clever point, but we need to hear it, which means it's not done out of anger as punishment. That we do not need to fear ever the wrath of God or the punishment for our sins. Why? Because Jesus has taken it for us. Which means that there's no suffering in your life that you can think about, oh, is this punishment for that sin for a few years ago? That's not true. That, that will never be the case. He, he may discipline in love, but he doesn't punish in anger. He's a loving father. He will not wound you in any way that is not loving and ultimately for your good. In fact, he doesn't act towards you in any way that isn't ultimately for your good. Perhaps you don't really believe that this morning. Maybe you need to resolve this morning that God is for your good. There's a, there's a wonderful um, a verse in a passage in Lamentations 3 that gets at this. It says, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does not afflict from his heart. Or put another way, he does not, his heart's desire is not to cause you affliction and pain. His deep desire is for your good and not for your harm. He may cause grief to rouse you from some life-destroying sin, but there's an outworking of his love for you. So discipline is hard, it is loving, and it's done with a future focus. It's done with an idea of what can be obtained in the future. It's why parents discipline their, their children because they have an idea of, of what their children can be in the future and they, they use discipline to help them get there. It's part of their role. I, I, I don't have kids, but I've been in enough families in the church who do to know that however much you love your children, it grows old if they're constantly throwing their food on the floor. 
And in fact, it's because you love them that you will work to help them not do that. Because while that's kind of par for the course when they're a toddler, if they're 18 and they still can't keep the food on the plate, then something's an issue. And boy, did we come into the Christian life throwing food on the floor, scribbling on the walls and throwing tantrums. Why? Because we didn't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. No, in fact, the opposite. We had to accept that we could do nothing, accept that we needed a savior. And so there's going to be mess in all of our lives. And he will work. And he has a model as to what we can look like. It says in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share Jesus's holiness. We may share his holiness. God has a plan of what we are to grow into, and the image is Jesus. And it's a promise that one day we will be like him. And that not only means the end of, of, of pain and suffering and death, but it means the end to all of our sin. It means the end to that heart of pride I know I have. It means the end of seeking to be, desiring to be seen in a certain way. All of the temptations and complications that it is involved in having a part of a heart that longs to do stuff and, and, and enjoys doing stuff that doesn't honor God. It will be the, that will be gone. It will be simple. It will be for freedom that Christ has set us free. That is freedom. We will share in Jesus' holiness and have him himself. Discipline is loving. It is for our good that we might be like Jesus. It's part of being in the family. Let's finish by having a look at the, the last few verses in Amos 4. He says, in, He's worked that they would return to him, and they haven't yet. And, and now God tells Israel that they're going to meet him anyway. He says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. This is the God they're going to meet. They've got to prepare to meet their God. This is the God is described in verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his fault, who makes the morning darkness, who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. That's the end of this uh, call to repent and turn to God that Amos has in this chapter that his mercy is still available, they can still turn, they, can, they will meet their God. And in fact, Israel did meet their God. He came not in judgment as was expected, not in might, but he came walking on the, the mountaintops as a man in Jesus. The covenant was still a shreds and still broken, but Jesus took that upon himself. And so if we trust him, we can delight in this promise that we will meet our God again face to face. It is good news. And that we will be entirely like him on that day. Prepare to meet your God is still an instruction today. He is coming back. 
If you don't know him, then it is a fearful thing to meet your God on the basis of your own life and your own personal holiness. But everyone who comes to Jesus, he receives. And so Amos chapter 4 finishes, seek God, seek God and live. That's chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be next week. And I'll leave you guys in the capable and great hands of Alex Drugan. He'll be continuing our series. He's a good God. We're going to finish in worship because we can sing. Let's meet our God in worship. We have the band up. Heavenly Father, we know you are a big and mighty and sovereign God. And so we come to you and ask, would you have your way in our lives? Would you point out areas of sin that should be identified that you want us to change in? Would we know your peace and healing in our suffering? Would we trust you that whatever might come to us, you are in control, that you are good and you are faithful? We love you, Lord. Amen.